Kia and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. In July 2017, the American humorist and diarist and podcaster and overall man of culture, David Sedaris, came on Saturday morning to chat to Kim about his newest book of musings. And what followed is one of the most hilariously insightfully self-deprecating 40 minutes of radio you're ever likely to hear. Kim, according to her producers, adored David Sedaris. And i got to say personally, I think this is probably my favourite in the entire collection. We do hope you enjoy it. It's eight minutes past ten. David Sedaris is one of the funniest writers. Last time we spoke on this programme four years ago, It was about his collection of essays and fiction called Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls. Sedaris writes a lot about his family, who are eccentric, as is he, several collections, autobiographical, self-deprecating, and now Theft by Finding, Diaries, Volume 1. It covers the years between 1977 and 2002, He began writing a diary when he was about 21. And I asked David Sedaris if he ever thought that he would uh, publish such a weighty volume. No, I didn't. And I'm I'm not sure I like the fact that it's it's so thick and heavy. Sometimes I'm signing books and I look down the line and I'll see somebody carrying three books. And that's four and a half pounds. (laughs) That's a lot. That's a lot to be carrying. Um, I was, you know, flipping my way through it, and I, I took a while to figure out what IHOP stood for. International House of Pancakes. Which we're not familiar with here, I think. What is the draw card there, apart from the obvious pancakes? Well, it's a, it's a chain restaurant in the United States, and they all look alike. So they all have, uh, they all have like, pitched roofs, so they're like A-frame buildings. And they sell, you know, like one of the things when I was at the IHOP they would have was with the Rudy Tootie Fresh and Fruity Breakfast. And so it's like breakfast all day. And then they would have, you know, lunch and dinner things too. But I probably ate at the IHOP four times. But I would just go because they would let you have an entire booth and they'd give you a whole pot of coffee and you could sit there for an hour. But... The coffee, by today's standards, would be completely unacceptable. But I just appreciated the fact that I could go somewhere out of the house and sit there for an hour. And when I very first started, I would write in my diary then, but then I started typing. So then I would go to the IHOP and I would just read library books and make notes. Were you poor then? Yeah, I was poor. But usually... um, A town would just have one IHOP. Like in Raleigh, North Carolina, there was one IHOP. And in Chicago, there were two. But I talked to someone... (laughs) I talked to someone recently, and there were two IHOPs in their town, and one was on Cox Avenue, and they would answer the phone, IHOP on Cox. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You have to put it in context, right? Not the I Help on Cox, you understand, but going there all the time. And there's a line around that time, 1990, I don't know. And it says in your diaries, I saw lots of chicken today for $1.50 a pound. That's it. Well, but the, but if you were to like read the diary book, it seems like you know I would write four sentences every 
you know, every two months. But actually, I would write pages and pages a day. But out of that, only maybe only a few sentences might be of interest. But you, you decided know, to been, leave in, I saw lots of chicken today for $1.50 a pound. Well, I've always been obsessed with the prices of things. <laughs> so later on in volume two, I go to Japan where chickens were $40. Wow. Yeah. So I, I've always been very interested in the price of meat. Um, when you first met Hugh... I'm going at random through these diaries now. Sure. When you first met Hugh, the man you've lived with for 20, 100 years now, 26 years, right? <laughs> he's a saint. Um, he is a saint. I mean, I'm not saying he's a saint he because a saint. he's lived with yeah. you 26 years. He's just a saint, right? When you first met him, you were borrowing a ladder and he had, you're telling us, a wet bar in the shape of a tree stump, right? Now, yes. you have always said that Hugh has immaculate taste. Is this before he got immaculate taste? No. I mean, the wet bar <laughs> in the shape of a tree stump is immaculate taste. It's, no. It doesn't, you know, it looks just like a tree stump. And it's about maybe four feet high. And the top of it opens, and then there are drawers in the front of it. But it's not a tree stump. It's made out of wood, but it's 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 not... An actual tree stump. It's just made out of wood. Um, it's it's. We still have it. You know, it's one of those pieces of furniture. We moved it to France, and we moved to France, and then we moved it to England. When we moved to England. And did it's, people it's, say, and, "Oh, it, good lord, you have a wet bar in the shape of a tree stump"? No, you know what they say. What? How much will you? How much can I buy that from you for? Really? Yeah. No, wow. it's magnificent. Goodness me! That's a really. It's a really great piece of furniture. And and it's never, you know, like most things, it seems like, you know, you buy something and you think, oh, I'm going to love this forever. And about five years later, you're ready to get rid of it. Not the bar in the shape of a tree stump, it's a keeper. <laughs> I can't tell. I cannot tell whether you're serious or not. Okay. I'm serious. I'm Next serious. question. Why did you wear a stadium pal in a bookstore? Well, I had an editor at the time who told me about it. And so and then as a joke, he gave it to me. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to try it. You need to explain what it is, right? Well, the, the ads for the stadium, pal, the, the ad, there was a fellow who went to Mardi Gras in New Orleans. And he's boasting, I didn't have to stand in line to use the toilet once because he just went in his pants, right? It's an external catheter. So it's a condom... A, type thing that you fit over your penis and then coming from that is a rubber tube and it runs down your leg and the urine collects in what's called the freedom leg bag which you attach to your calf so I thought sold you know and I'll, I'll wear it and I was on a book tour and I just wanted to see what it was like to pee in my pants in, in front of a room full of people who wouldn't know that I was doing it and the first thing was it's hard to pee and talk at the same time. So I had to wait for Q&A, and then someone would ask a question, and I'd go, hmm, hmm, and kind of <laughs> nod my head and pee then. But then I had a piping hot bag of urine strapped to my calf, and that was disconcerting, and I smelled like a nursing home. They never mentioned that in the ad. You just you used like it the once home. then? Yeah, I just used it. And taking it off, oh, my goodness. I think it could be, that would be considered a briss. In certain cultures, I a think. A what? A what? A bris. What is that? It's like a circumcision. Oh! I mean, when you... It's a... 
removing, it's a self-adhesive condom. And just taking that off, I mean, a lot of skin came off with it. Good Lord. Yeah. I can't believe this. Maybe I've led a sheltered life or I don't go to enough stadia or something, but I've never heard of such a thing. Well, now someone told me they make them for women, and somebody was telling me the other day she used one, and it's called You Go, Girl. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine that they would be very useful for people who are addicted to the pokey machines. You know how you can't leave the pokey machine? Yeah. For fear that it might give you the big win while you're in the toilet. You know what? I think you're absolutely right, because when I go to casinos and I see those people... You're right, and because they're so superstitious, too, and they don't want to leave their machine. Yeah, you're right. Do you go to casinos very often? Uh, when, I, when I do shows in Las Vegas, maybe oh, every you? year and a half, but I don't care about gambling. I went to, one, like twice I made myself do it, but just to see what it was like. I don't, it doesn't really, I, it didn't. I'm not tempted by it. It's it's not my addiction. You know, um, most people who keep diaries, and I know that you're different, obviously, but I don't know whether that's true, actually. All I know is that at New Year, I burnt all mine. Mm. Can I tell you what your problem was? What? You read through them too soon. Hello? I'm that... 60 But But most people, they'll start to keep a diary. And then they'll read over it like a week later and they'll oh, say, no. oh, this is rubbish. Lord, no. Mine are older than yours. Mine go back way before yours. Really? Yes. Well, you know what? Maybe it is. You were writing about your feelings. Were you doing that? Ah, well, now we have the problem here. Yes, I was. And it was terrible. Yeah. You didn't write yeah. about your feelings or did you cut them all out for the book? I never wrote about my feelings. I, I, I never really cared about my feelings or else I guess I, I knew that they were so subject to change. But what I tend to write about are things that I see and things that I overhear. Yeah. So if you're going to write about a conversation that you overheard people at the next table having, then when you read that over 40 years down the line, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. No, you're quite right. I kept the wrong sort of diary is my problem. Yeah, yeah. Ah. No, a lot of people have your problem. You know, um, they just write about their emotions. I was, I was uh, remembering you saying that you would never marry Hugh, the saintly mm-hmm. Hugh. Um, uh, uh, but then for tax purposes, you considered it, right? Yeah, but we're not married. Okay, not even yeah. for tax purposes. You worked on him, though. Yeah, and then he said yes, but then we just kind of dropped it. You know, I think everyone, you know, it's nice to be asked, you know, <laughs> but... But I didn't really, I don't know, I don't want to say that I'm married, you know? No. I don't want to, I mean, it's great that gay people got the right to get married, and I think that's great, and, you know, obviously I, but I just never wanted to be, I I never, it never meant anything to me to be married, especially when you get old, you know, because it's not like, oh, I need that security, or it's not like, you know, after a certain age, I, I'll put up with anything, just so long as I don't ever have to be single again. Oh, really? The prospect yeah. of being single is so terrible. Oh, you know, when you meet people who are online dating and uh, I, I just are just even not online, just doing... I mean, when you're 60, I mean, maybe a 90-year-old would be interested in you, but really, nobody wants to... 
nobody wants to have sex with someone our age, you know? They just don't. I mean, they will if they have to, but if, if they had a choice between us and someone half our age, of course they're going to go with someone. Even if the person half our age has a miserable personality, it doesn't matter. No, that's true. Youth is a, a great sort of smoother over of most other faults, isn't it? It sure well, is. Yeah. <laughs> Looking into the future, I see nothing but a mess. I think I peaked in 1988, and it's all downhill now. Good Lord. And how old were you then? Like 30 or something. No, 40 1988. Maybe. 19... I was uh, 19... 32. Yeah. And... No, was I? I was born in 56, 66, 76, 86. Yeah, you were uh, 36. Oh, really? Yeah, but I, I uh, yeah, I believe that. I mean, but I believe that all the time. What, you still believe that? Oh, sure. Yeah, but yeah. you're allowed to peak now. You're old enough to have peaked now. Sorry. Well, well, I mean, you're right, but what I didn't understand about getting older was that when you get older and, let's say, somebody comes up behind you, then... Chances are you're like, okay, that makes sense. You know, I've had my run and now it's somebody else's turn. And I always thought that you would, that that would be the worst thing that could happen to you and you would, you would resist it and you would be so depressed about it. But now I can see how, you know, it's just part of getting older that you say, okay, well, I had my turn and now it's somebody else's turn. I still don't want it to happen. So what But I mean, that? eventually is... I'm going to go on tour and nobody's going to show up. Oh. That's going to happen one day. It happens to everyone, so there's no reason it wouldn't happen to me. Mm. But I I'm going to cry. I don't think day. it's. I don't think it's going to happen to you because you know you, you're you're you. I mean, you, it's not like you play the guitar and your fingers get arthritic. You, you're always going to be able to do you, <laughs> aren't you? Yeah, but but you know the same way as you're just doing the Chinese thing of bad grain, bad grain. Of what? Well, you know how the Chinese, if they have a great harvest, they don't want the gods to punish them because they've been too lucky, and so they go bad grain, bad grain. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. I, lo I love your descriptions of your sister Amy's outrageous public embarrassments. Give me a small sample. Oh, she's always been really good that way. I mean, in a story once, I had it. She uh, was on a subway train and uh there weren't that many people in the car it was in chicago and she got off the subway train and said see you later david good luck beating that rape charge and and then you're just there <laughs> the doors closed behind her and you want to look around to people and say that's my sister and she was just kidding but that just makes you look more guilty yep so no she's always been really good at that always been really good at just really just destroying you in public and she she came upon Hugh in a restaurant one day and she shouted here you are and me with the baby waiting in the car and wine you're drinking wine I hate being your sponsor sometimes <laughs> she's great no she really is she's really good at that and then she was with my mother in a store one time and said I think that's great they gave you your license back so soon after that drunk driving incident <laughs> Which was a bit close to the bone, having just read, it was. having just read the essay about your mother in the New Yorker, where I mean, as far as I know, for the first time, you say my mother was an alcoholic. 
Yeah, it's something that I think when I'm writing an essay, I, I have to be a certain distance away from something to write about it, right? Like uh, I had a roommate my first year of college, university, who was uh, in a wheelchair. She had a disease called Friedrich's ataxia. And I was able to write about that in 1992. You know, I was able to write about it, uh, which was maybe we, uh, she, let's see, I'd last seen her in like 1977, right? So in 1992, I was able to write about it. Sometimes there are things that I can write about that week or two weeks later, but sometimes it takes 26 years to write about something. I think I just had to get that far away from it and just be grown up enough about it to write about it in a way that wasn't a poor me way and wasn't a judgmental way. Could but, you have written it? Because, I mean, it's it's certainly a very grown-up essay and a lot of people who write about their alcoholic parents are angry uh, and, yes, judgmental and... Did you go through those stages, or did you never have those stages? I went through those stages when I was younger, but now, I, I mean, I, I think what I was trying to say is, in that essay, is a lot of really good people are alcoholics, and they don't have the wherewithal to stop, and so we bend ourselves around them. You know, they're people we love, and so we we mold ourselves. Yeah. It's surprising, though, isn't it? Because your whole family seems pretty out there, and yet none of you used the word, none of you confronted her, even your father. Not like the interventions on television that you refer to. Right. But, you know, like my father was really angry about that essay. Was he? And But he didn't say anything to me. You know, he just said it to other people in my family. And then I've seen my father and I've talked to him on the phone, never mentioned it. Wow. You know? And he, so was, we, we, he was angry because he disagreed with it or because you were airing dirty washing? I think he was angriest because I talked about what a rack his house is. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah. Um, that's what... And plus he's... You know, he didn't understand either that... What he didn't understand is, like, you can say negative things about, about, not negative things, but you can spotlight somebody's problems, let's say, or their their less than stellar um, points, but that just makes them more real. Like, that just made people love my mother more, that essay. Well, yeah, because, because one could feel your love. I mean, you really loved her. And so much did you love her that you accommodated that, enabled it, you could say, in the modern parlance, but that doesn't mm-hmm. make much sense when you read that essay. Well, I think... I don't I don't think my father wanted that to be true. I don't think he wanted... You know, obviously, no one wanted her to be an alcoholic, but she just was. And so denying it while she was alive... And then continuing to deny it really doesn't do anybody any good, really. You were often drunk too, of course. Oh, yeah. That's why I, you know, and I, and I don't want to uh, 
you know, everybody has their secrets and everybody's got stuff that, but, you know, a number of people in my family have problems that way, you know? I mean, like a majority of people in my family have problems that way. So So what are you thinking, nature or nurture or both? I think, you know, I think sometimes it's just in your blood. I mean, it's just you're an alcoholic or you're a drug addict and and you're a child for a while and then you find your drug and then you attach yourself to it. So how do you get detached from it? Well, I mean, it's hard. It's it's uh, you've got to make a concerted effort, and you have to quit, and you have to kind of quit everything. You have to, you know, it's not like I could, I couldn't say, okay, I'm going to quit drinking, but I'm going to keep taking drugs. You know, I had to quit everything, and I can't tell you how many people would say, oh, you're so boring now, and it's like, yeah, but you know. That's a I shocking much thing to pre- say. Did they really? Oh, my goodness. People say that stuff like that all the time. Shocking. Um, but they didn't know me when I was drinking and when I was on drugs. I wasn't... I think I was more boring then than I am now. I'm talking to David Sedaris, whose latest book is called Theft by Finding Diaries, Volume 1. It kind of makes sense that you should you know, do everything cold turkey because you're so, I was going to say obsessive, disciplined. You know, you're so, uh, like the way you pick up the trash. It's every day you're out there picking up the trash along that roadway and you've got the Fitbit going and you're measuring how far you're walking and how many bags of trash you're picking up. It's kind of, you're quite extreme. But it's not discipline. I think it's a compulsion. And it's the same thing that has me writing in my diary every day. And the compulsions change and they shift. And I've taken it. But, you know, if I take up an interest in something, it's like, you know, 110% interest. And there's no taking a break from it. It is... I, I Poor Hugh. I mean, one of the reasons he's a saint is that he'll put up with stuff like this. But... You know, whenever I go to another country, say, like I went to Sweden, so then I have to spend a month work learning Swedish. Like, I mean, every day I have to put stickers. I have to put notes on everything that's a Swedish name for everything. I have to listen to these tapes. I have to, uh, I mean, I have to f- f- throw myself into it. And, you know, I'm just going to Sweden for five days. So so how's your Swedish? Well, the Swedish was maybe about six or seven years ago. I can still say some things in Swedish, but then I had to move on. Then I had to do it with Polish. And then I had to move, get out of the way, Polish. It's time for Romanian. <laughs> so <laughs> You haven't done Hungarian yet, though, have you? That's really hard. No, I know I haven't done Hungarian. But, you know, the hardest was Korean. Oh, oh my God. I nothing stuck in Korean. No. I mean nothing. And I I I was really nothing. Not not good morning. Everything was hard in Korean. You have a very nice entry about learning French in your diaries where you say, you know, why write the boring phrase set for your homework of I went to the store with a friend when, without relying on the dictionary, I can say I visited the slaughterhouse with my godfather and a small monkey. <laughs> I want to ask you whether you can still say that in French. 
let's see. Let's see. Okay, I, I went, I can say... Je visite l'avatoire. Avec un petit singe. I went to the slaughterhouse. With my godfather and a small monkey. Oh, parent is godfather, right? Yep. Avec mon parent un petit singe. Very good. And that's come in handy, I'm sure. Um, the joke... Well, wait, wait, I... When I was looking over the diary, though, like I would spend, you know, 17 hours on my French homework. I mean, I would just... Because it was writing, and I didn't want to be a bad writer. And so trying to get your rhythm down in another language is really hard. Yeah. Or trying to make interesting conversation in French or English is another very funny bit where you're trying to you're trying to be interesting and all you can come up with to this chap who's, you know, got horses and villas and God knows what, is what will you eat tonight? And did your dog sleep well? <laughs> in both English I and French. When I read that. Did you do you make yourself laugh? Oh, that made me laugh because whose dog does whose I know dog doesn't sleep well. Um there is a joke <laughs> there is a joke in your diary there is a joke in your diary that I have told several times since I read it. And it must be a very old joke because I think it's in, you know, the nineteen eighties section or even earlier. And it's the one about and I can't tell it because this is a national radio, it's the one about the pantyhose. And the man oh, and the right. woman. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, yes. I found that hilarious. Well, I liked the joke when I was reading through it about toilet paper. That made me laugh because I'd for- completely forgotten about it. That is, joke made me laugh. Is that possible? I can't remember that one. Is that possible to tell? No. no okay. That's not good for the radio. Good. But they, I've always written down every joke that made me laugh. So really, in the second part of the diaries, there are so many jokes in there because I went on tour couple of years ago and I would tell people I would ask people to tell me a joke when they got their book signed and and a lot of the jokes were like bad or but I bet I got 50 top-notch jokes wow. and it's good to write them down I mean I don't know about you but I can only ever remember one joke at a time and the only one I know now is the one about the pantyhose so well I write them down and then I categorize them you know I I have a file on my computer and so I put the jokes into, oh, is it a racist joke? Is it a sexist joke? Is wow. it a knock-knock joke? Is it a, you know, a clean, a, you know, a joke you could tell a child? Right. And where do you tell your racist jokes these days? Well, you know, I, I was asking people when I was on tour, I said, give me a gay joke. I said, I know you've got them. You know, I know you know it. And everyone would say, no, I've never heard one. I mean, that's, that's just not true. Right. And so somebody told me a gay joke and it is shocking. I mean, it just it just takes the pain off the walls. But it's a good joke. Is it? Does it make you laugh? Yeah, it made me laugh. But it's a good it's a good joke. Okay. You know, like sometimes something's not a good joke and you think, eh, you know, that's pretty lame. Yeah. But as as hard as this joke is, you got to admit it's good. And, you know, it's it's well it's a well put together joke it's pretty it's pretty hard with jokes isn't it like i was in the middle of telling the pantyhose joke the other night to someone and i thought is this appropriate 
is there something wrong with this joke? And I couldn't really find anything wrong with it. I think it seemed okay. I mean, you're not, not to tell your grandmother, perhaps. But, you know, it wasn't... Was it sexist? I don't think it's sexist. You have to check it no, all now. No, I don't now. think so. Yeah. People tell... So. I mean, apart from jokes, do people tell you stuff... Do people tell you stuff wanting to get into your stories? I think so, but those are rarely the things that get into the stories. Well, because that's Usually, phony, isn't it? <clears throat> yeah, or it's not as good as they think it is. But generally speaking, sometimes then... I'll ask somebody a question and that can lead to another question and another question. And then before you know it, they're telling you something that's remarkable. I was signing books the other day and this woman asked me to sign a book to her goddaughter. And so I asked a couple of questions and I learned that the goddaughter, when the goddaughter was a, a child, the family convinced her that as long as she was naked, she was invisible. And they have all this video footage of her marching into the kitchen after her bedtime, completely naked, and opening the refrigerator and taking out Coca-Cola, <laughs> which she wasn't allowed to drink. And they would just continue talking as if she weren't there, you know, just to really make her believe this. And then she'd be naked and she'd get a chair and she'd climb up into the kitchen cabinets and get, get into the cookies and candy. And to me, that's that's not what they meant to tell me when they came up in line. No. But... I can't imagine anything better. It's such a beautiful little story. It's so so complete. Just, uh, I live for things like that. She's going to have to stop doing it when she grows older, though, isn't she? <laughs> oh, she is older <laughs> now. But I, I do kind of wonder when they... In, <laughs> what you know, Exactly. Yeah. Um, Maybe when she got pubic hair. They said, you know, yeah. we need to break it to you. But, but we can see you. Obsessive compulsive collection of houses and apartments, David. A, a collection of houses and apartments yeah. you mean, that I own? Uh huh. Uh, yeah, there are there are quite a few <laughs> quite a few of them. I mean when I write an essay sometimes I have to make it sound like I just, you know, have one or two places, but you know, a lot of them we rent out. It's interesting. My parents were landlords, and I never thought I would follow them. Uh, I never thought I would get involved in that. But we have, like, I don't know, four places that we rent out. Oh, I thought you would have them because you like moving around. So you would, you know, duck in and out of all of them. But you can't do that if you've rented them out. No, we have other ones that we duck in and out of. Okay. You, you know, so many. we still have, like, f four or five that we duck in and out See what I mean? duck in and out of good lord well because because you know like we were just thinking recently in tokyo it's i love going to tokyo right and i we we, go we should everywhere. have a house in tokyo is that what you were well thinking? at least an apartment because that way you could decorate it well I mean, you because, could decorate it yeah with you know wet bars that look like tree stumps well no we'd get all japanese stuff that would be the beauty of it yeah and we would um, you know, the thing is that the paperwork might be a nightmare. But you'd have to hire somebody. You'd have to hire somebody to say, well, we, we'll have all the mail go to you and you just pay the taxes on it and you just, you know, if they need to come and do something with the gas main, you take care of that because that would be a headache trying well, to... Hugh would do all that, that stuff. You know he would. Yeah, he does. 
do he takes care of everything. Saint. He's a saint. Um, we were talking about your mother, and I, I wanted to ask you, and I'm sorry if this is um, a dark thing you don't want to talk about, but your sister Tiffany committed suicide uh, in 2013. And you have said that your mother never treated her well, and she was quite estranged from the family. That sounds really difficult. And I remember interviewing you or in that year, 2013, and it must have been after it happened. I didn't know. You never mentioned it. I feel kind of bad about that. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, my sister Tiffany committed suicide in 2013, and she, I mean, it was a surprise that she did it. But when I look back and I think, okay, I, I would feel, I feel better about her committing suicide than about her dying in an accident or something. Because it was her choice and she was in control of it. And her life was really, really difficult, you know, really difficult. She didn't want to take her medication and she didn't want to be mentally ill, and she was, and she didn't want to face it and deal with it, and so she, you know, but if you don't take your medication, things pile up, and your life becomes more and more difficult, and I understand, you know, when you're on your medication, things are difficult too, because you feel thick-headed, and you know, you gain a lot of weight, and it's just a pain in the ass, but the alternative is worse. But she was, you know, when I look at my sister's life, and I, you know, you wonder, like, okay, when did everything start? But for some reason, yeah, it was true. My mother had six kids, and Tiffany was just sort of the runt. And I don't know, my mother just never really liked my sister Tiffany for some reason. And we just followed my mother's lead. You know, like, well, mom doesn't like her that much, so I guess we don't either. And she ran away from home when she was 14, and then she got sent off to, a, to like, a concentration camp for children. What? And it was a horrible place. My parents saw, read, they saw it on television, and it was a place where it's kind of like the inmates were running the asylum. And she had to, like, dress in a Nazi uniform and, oh, you know, she had to get into a boxing ring and wear boxing gloves and fight other people. And it was a horrible place. And I don't think that helped much. And then, you know, then drugs got involved and just bad choices and hanging out with the wrong people. And it just kind of snowballed until, until she killed herself. And she didn't want any of you at the memorial service? No, and she said we couldn't have her body, we couldn't have her ashes. She, we couldn't... Um, we couldn't... So there was a, like a little ceremony up there, but we couldn't go to it. And My sister Lisa... my Tiffany's ashes went to somebody, and my sister Lisa went to that person and said, could we like have a thimbleful? To, you know, just to kind of scatter and, you know, have a little private time with. And she said no. And I understand that. You know, she was, you know, Tiffany put it in writing. She didn't want us to have any of her, so oh. we don't. 
You know, in anybody else's, and we talked about this a little earlier, in anybody else's hands, your family, your life, you know, it could have been portrayed as very grim. And I, and you've, I don't know, how you managed to make it sad and funny at the same time. Do you know well, how? Well, like, I wouldn't be interested in writing about it if it was just sad. I wouldn't be interested because everything I write... In terms of an essay, I read out loud in front of an audience, and I don't want to get in front of an audience and just hear silence. I, I need to, I, because I'm a desperately needy person, I need to hear their laughter. I need to, so I wouldn't just write about something in a straight way. The National Geographic just approached me, and they wanted me to write about giraffes, and I guess their numbers are dwindling, and there are fewer giraffes out there than there are elephants now. And then the the person who wrote me went on about giraffe mating and giraffe diet and the digestive system. And I don't... It's not the kind of writing I do. I, I can't imagine how you would make that funny. I wonder why they thought giraffes, David Sedaris. I have absolutely no idea. I mean, if I were going to ask me to write about an animal I don't gee I don't I don't I mean it would just be an animal I could belittle I think no you can't do that to giraffes giraffes are too they're too adorable and too weird but you're thinking about it right their numbers maybe one of the reasons that their numbers are so low is that they don't they literally don't have a voice you know, they don't even make noise. I think that that's wrong. I think that they might make a little noise. Oh, really? Yeah. But do you think it's like just the sound of someone clearing their throat? Like, <clears throat> yeah, I think it <clears throat> might. That might be the best giraffe imitation I've ever heard. <laughs> I think you're the man for the job. <laughs> the other thing is they can't do something. They can't. What can't they do? They they can't bend down, can they? I don't know. I mean, I don't. Do they ever lay down? I mean, maybe they get on all fours, but do they ever, like, stretch out? I don't know. I mean, I could learn all this by doing the article, but I'm not going to do the article because I, I, I can't see myself reading out loud a 12-page essay about giraffes. And if I can't read it out loud, I, I don't want anything to do with it. Come on, you've done weirder things. Mm, I mean, it would be one thing to write about the experience of going to Africa to write about giraffes. Right. So if I were going to go to Africa to write about giraffes, but I would never to write the article. I could write an article about that. But I couldn't. That's not what National Geographic. They don't want me in the story. No. Well, they don't want the word I. No, well, that's, that's another weird thing why they would approach you. Have you been to Africa before? I've been to Morocco and North Africa, but no, I've never been to Africa. No, oh, well, there'd, but be, I, the, I, I, there'd I would, be the Swahili you'd have to learn. I met a, a guy on a plane. Couple, uh, a couple months ago, I'm on a plane, and there's this guy next to me, and he puts a bag of change on the seat between us, and there were euro coins, and I said, is that 70 American dollars in euros? And he said, that is exactly 70 American dollars in euros. He said, how did you know? And I don't know how I knew, but I just did. But he and I got to talking, and he's a doctor, and so he travels to Africa a lot to do... Uh, surgery, you know, on, on uh, horribly sick people. 
And he said I could come with him any time. Now, that's the way to go to Africa. It was American humorist David Sedaris. His latest book is Theft by Finding, Diaries, 1977 to 2002, Volume 1.